following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. We have talked about the Beatitudes as being the summation of the entire Bible. Eight theological statements that, when given out, summarize the entire Bible. That's an incredible experience, I think. For those of you who like bottom-line thinking and want to reduce everything to the ultimate reductionist, um, here's the whole summary of the Bible. And today we come now to the last two. And I want to just remind us that Jesus is not describing eight different kinds of people, but one. And he's not saying that he wanted one person to be meek, another person to hunger and thirst, and another person to be merciful. No, that's not the point. God intends for these birthmarks, these attitudes to be in every believer. And so we come now to Matthew 5, 9. The, seri- the, the seed says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You know, you can always tell when Jesus stepped in. No matter what was going on, his presence always made a decided difference. You ever met anybody like that? When they kind of walk into the room, they just kind of fill up the room. (laughs) Uh, You can always tell when they're there. Well, that was Jesus. Nobody ever ignored him in that day. Uh, they, They may have hated him, but boy, did he draw attention. He always changed the level and the quality of the conversation. Where there was hatred, Jesus would walk in and bring peace. If there was sadness in a house, he'd bring joy. If there was fear and dismay, he brought hope. If there was death and mourning, he was talking about resurrection. Wherever he went, he made a difference. If the conversation was kind of in the gutter, he'd raise it up. I might have a question for you today. When you walk into a room, do you make a difference? Fellas, you're at work, and someone tells an off-color sexual joke. Do you just jump in and laugh, or do you raise the conversation up a bit? Ladies, if someone's gossiping about someone else in the church, do you change the topic and say, That's not what God wants us to do and raise the level of conversation? Do you make a difference where you go and does your presence make a difference? Do you change situations? Jesus said we're salt and light. Can you bring, if the room looks a little dark, does your presence bring in a little light? People sometimes just lower the quality of life. Do you raise it? We should be like medicine to sickness. We should be like light to darkness. We should be taste when there is no taste. Jesus says, I want you to be peacekeepers, not just peacemakers. Your presence should do something. Now, I want to share two things about peacemaking. And here they come up on the screen here. And it's first of all, it is that it's the negative part about the introdu- introducing the subject of peacemaking is that if the negative side is just the absence of conflict. 
It's important not to have conflict. It's, it's important to stop the fighting. But that's kind of the negative sign. The positive sign is number two, which says it's the rebuilding of one another's character. In other words, when you, when you are a peacemaker, you do both of those. When you are a peacekeeper, you're only doing one of them, which is the first one. Sometimes we can keep the peace by just not having a lot of conflict. But when you're peacemaking, you're rebuilding. In a treaty not too long ago uh, called NATO, uh, they had a real serious thing when they talked about the treaty between countries and when there was war. You know what that treaty said? That treaty said that if you bomb another country, when, it, when the war is over, you're responsible to rebuild the city. There has to be financial reparations to rebuilding that city. Well, it's the same with you when you have a fight or an argument with somebody. And you go ahead and just let them have a piece of your mind. Maybe it's a piece you really can't afford to lose, by the way. But anyway, you let them have it. You can say, I'm sorry for my behavior, but I'll think that in order to be a peacemaker, you need to kind of rebuild that situation and bring some healing between the two of you. That's peacekeeping. People sometimes just make peace. But Jesus said, I want you to be a peacekeeper. When you have peace with God, it does not simply mean that God is, is, is just quit you know, being mad at you. But he also says, you're my covenant daughter. You're my covenant son. And my relationship with you will never end. Now, I have a son, Joseph, and a daughter, Rachel, and I think they're wonderful kids, and I've, I've loved them. I, I love them to death. But my son is very competitive. Very competitive. I, I know some other fathers who have sons that are competitive. But my son, Joe, is very competitive. And, and when we play golf together, the hole will be here and the ball will be like six inches. And my son will say, that's not a gimme. You need to put that out. Really? You're going to make me put a six-inch putt? You know, it's so competitive in that situation. And so sometimes our relationship gets strained just a little bit. Now, Joseph will always be my son. But sometimes the fellowship gets strained. If you're a Christian today and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior... Your relationship with God is permanent, but sometimes our relationship with God gets strained because of our disobedience and whatever. But God is a peacekeeper. He says, I'm not going to change my relationship to you ever. But I'm committed to come into your life and to heal your life and bring about, the, bring about peace where there's disturbance and bring about healing where there's been rupture in your life. And so we too, if we're to be Christ-like, we're not just to end the conflict with somebody. We're there to rebuild the character of each other's lives. That's what it means to keep the peace. When they bring a quality of life where the blessings of God are invaluable, in whether it's my home, my church, my office, we need to understand that this beatitude is the last beatitude that really belongs within the Christian now let me just kind of run through that for you because it's been very, very important because each of these beatitudes come right out of each other. We're over here at whatever this thing is here, and that's our poor in spirit mark right over here. 
Jesus says, blessed are those who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. He has everything to offer them. Not you have a little bit and God gets most of it. No, you're bankrupt. You're destitute. You have nothing spiritually to offer God at all. When you come to that point, that's when you understand you need Jesus. He has everything to offer you. And what does that do to that Christian? What does that do to that person? It breaks their heart. It causes them to mourn. What does mourn mean? It means to have your heart broken over with what breaks God's heart. And what broke God's heart? That you were on your own program, that you thought you didn't need him. It broke his heart. But now you're mourning and you're saying, I don't want to break God's heart anymore. So I want to come under his control. I want to be meek. I want to be under the ridership of the Holy Spirit. And when I am, you know what that does? It causes me to hunger and thirst, to have a banquet appetite for his word. So that I can be filled up with his right thinking and his righteousness. So that I know how to really be merciful. I know how to judge, but I only judge through scripture. And when I judge through scripture, when I do it that way, all of a sudden my motives become a lot purer. It's not my agenda, now it's God's agenda. And when it's God's agenda, that causes me to want to be a peacemaker. It causes me to want to bring the peace and rebuild the characters in people's life. When I'm a peacemaker, what is the promise at that point? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be what? Called, say it with me, the sons of God. Isn't it interesting that when you're making the peace, you're most like Jesus? That's when you're called a son of God. I thought it was when I was preaching or when I was praying or when I was witnessing. All those are good things. But it's when I'm making the peace, when I stop the conflict and I begin to rebuild in people's lives, that's when God begins to say, now that's one of my kids. Well, what does it mean then in that sense then to to be that peacemaker? It's obviously not just my ability to get along with people. How can a person say he can love God and not love his brother? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fly. No, the proof's in the pudding. And the Bible teaches that the climax is my ability to get along with people or my availability to be to the Spirit so he can work through me. The proof of my love for God is that I truly do love others and I'm committed to rebuilding what I have to do in their life to do it. There are times where my son, Joe, he is always going to be my son. The relationship never changes, but the fellowship has to be restored. And we have to rebuild in our lives occasionally. I have to rebuild in my daughter's life. I have to rebuild in, in, in when I was a pastor, I had to rebuild in some of the lives of my elders and some of my church council people, because at times the fellowship got strained a little bit. That's normal in the Christian life. It's normal. The question isn't whether or not that's normal. The question is, are you committed to rebuilding? This morning we met with the church council and a number of people from the church upstairs in the third floor. And I talked to them about a little movie that had been out for many, many years. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called The Untouchables. It's Elliot Ness trying to track down the famous American mobster Al Capone and put him away in prison for tax evasion. And in that, Sean Connery, the very gifted actor, plays the part of Jimmy Conlon. A cop who joins Elliot Ness in his, his attempt to get Capone. And, and he, the first thing he says, before I join your squad, he said, I want to ask you a question. What are you prepared to do? Are you going to play games here and just kind of do a lot of bureaucratic stuff? Or are you going to go get Capone? What are you prepared to do? 
And they try their hardest, and sometimes Elliot Ness is frustrated because he wants to follow the rules. He doesn't want to break the rules, but he realizes in order to get this Capone, he's going to have to take, he's going to have to take things into his own hands a little bit. Somewhere in that movie, Jimmy Conlon, the part that's played by Sean Connery, gets shot, and he's laying there, and he's dying in the hallway. And the last words of Jimmy Conlon is he reaches up and grabs Elliot Ness by the neck. He says, I'm not going to make it, but I want to ask you one more question. What are you prepared to do now? I simply ask that of you here at FIBC. Jesus said that this is what I want out of my people. I want people who understand that they've got nothing to offer me. I've got everything to offer them. And I want that to break their hearts so they don't want to be on their own program anymore. And I want them under my Holy Spirit's ridership. And I want them hungering and thirsting for my word so they know how to make decisions, so that they're pure in their hearts and their motives get cleaned up so that they will be the peacemakers and build into each other's lives to heal each other. And I would ask you this morning, what are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? Are you willing to fight that fight? Are you willing to become that koinonia, that community of of believers? You're going to have arguments from time to time. You're going to have misunderstandings from time to time. How do you rebuild in each other's life? One version puts it this way in this verse 9. It says, blessed are, are the ones who are reconciled and do the ministry of reconciliation. Boy, you can't have true fellowship with God if it isn't lived out with your fellow man. Notice what the promise says, when I'm promoting peace and harmony and bringing blessing in the lives of others, I'm most like Jesus. I make a difference. I raise the level of the conversation. I raise the level of healing. I am being like Jesus. Jesus even said by this will all men know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. You know, I think that's really true because when we said last week about the pure in heart is when the promise was, though blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see Jesus. The pure in heart are basically are the only ones who want to see Jesus, maybe. (laughs) You know, when you're doing the wrong thing and you're not pure in your heart, you don't want Jesus hanging around. (laughs) But when you're pure in heart, you really, you do see Jesus. And the interesting thing is that people see Jesus in you. But when you're making the peace, they truly know that you are his son and his daughter. Well, what's the flower say here? The flower says this in verse 23. Are we up on the flower? I think we've got to go back a slide or two. Just go back with me if you can. Just go back to that. There it is. Good. Thank you. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Well, let's take a look at these verses. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. Number one. Now we can go to that other slide there, G'day, if you can. First of all, we understand that to be a peacemaker, it's indispensable to my fellowship with God. First and go, be, first go and be reconciled. You cannot have fellowship with me unless you are having fellowship with others. You'll get, into, you'll get to the point in your fellowship when it's off with others that you will not even want to go to church sometimes. I mean, if, you got, if you're mad at somebody in this church, you know, you don't probably even want to go. You might drive by and you see their car in the lot. You go, oh, their car's in the lot. No, we're not, we're not going to go today. All right. Just to avoid people. 
That's not the way Jesus intended the Christian life to be lived. 1 John 1, 3 says, We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're having fellowship with God when we do when we do with this with others and vice versa. They are all bound up together. Therefore, if someone has a problem with me or you, then I've got to go get that right. Can't draw close to the same thing without drawing close to, to God. Well, I can come and say I want fellowship with God, but I also want to stay mad at so-and-so. That's not possible. And God doesn't want it. The church might, but God doesn't. When I preach or teach, God doesn't look at the quality of my teaching. He's not looking here. You know, I used to think that I was preaching, you were the audience, and God was looking in to see if I was okay. I don't think that anymore. I think I'm still the one who's preaching, but God is my audience, and you guys are eavesdropping. I've got to preach my message to the Lord. And he doesn't look at the quality of my teaching. He has to look at my heart to see if that's right. Gene, how can you be mad at people and get up there and be preaching my word? How can you do that? And so it is with each mom and dad and teenager here today. He's not looking at the quality of your service. He's looking at the quality of your heart. Same is true for my offering. We just took an offering here. And for my singing and my preaching. When the worship band was up here, their audience is really the Lord. It wasn't you. You guys got the eavesdrop on that too. But God was looking at the heart of each person up on this music team and saying, is your heart right? Because if your heart's not right, then your singing is nothing more than a stench in my nostrils. Sometimes we think we're so pious and we're so great, but God says, I want to tell you that in order to be known as my kid, you're going to want to be a peacemaker. You're going to want to cut the absence of conflict with people, and you want to be committed to rebuilding into their life. Now, I just have to, something to think that this might be interested to all of us. But what if the next time, and it was my fault that we didn't have communion last week, but the next time you have communion, how would this look? Seriously. You with me? Stay with me here for a minute. How would this look? That before you came up with communion, all of a sudden people were going to people before they came up and took communion and were going over and apologizing to each other in the church before they took communion. What would that look like? That'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? What would it look like if, if all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, Chris is playing the drums but he had a little conflict in the week. I'm only, this is just an example, Chris. I'm not saying this is true. But what if Chris all of a sudden said, I can't go up and play the drums until I walk over here and, and give Alan, Alan, I'm sorry for what I said. And, and I, want, I need you to ask you for your forgiveness. I can't play the drums today because you and I have had conflict. Now, again, this is just an example, okay, folks? And then Alan says, Chris, I love you. No problem. I forgive you. Thank you for coming up. Now Chris says, now I can go play the drums. What would a church look like if that took place on a Sunday? I'll tell you what. I think God would show up big time, don't you? I don't think we even know what it's like to have church. I mean, back where I grew up, somebody say that to me and said, what would happen if that broke out? I'll tell you what would happen. We'd have what we call serious church. (laughs) 
serious church. That'd be unbelievable to know that that's the kind of level that we're at. And now secondly, not only is it, is it important to be understood in this arena in every way, in every detail, but it's also to be, to be understood in, in another way too. And, and, and not only do you have to know the flower of the, of the verse at that point and understand that it's indispensable to my fellowship with God, but it's supposed to be initiated by us, the one remembering. In verse 23 it says, And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Well, we're the ones who need to do the initiating if we're the ones who do the remembering. You need to be proactive, the one doing the remembering. Ever go to prayer for somebody? Ever be in prayer for somebody? And in the front room of your mind, there's something that comes into your mind and says, Oh, brother, Lord, why did you bring that guy or that gal into my mind right now? I, yeah, I know they're upset with me. I, I know that we've got a problem. I've got to go deal with that before I go any further. And you could say, well, well, what if I have the problem? What if they offended me? You're still not off the hook. <laughs> Mark eleven twenty five says, and when you stand praying, if you hold against, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. It doesn't matter whether you've been offended or they offended you. You have a responsibility to be a peacemaker, because that's when you're most like Jesus. What if I took offense to something you said? What if you said something? You know, Gene, we've known you now for a month, and there's three things that you do, always do that we don't like. Oh, brother, you're keeping score? You're keeping a report card on me? Huh. I, I'm sure glad God doesn't love me the way you do. Because when he forgave my sins, he separated them as far as what? The east from the west, and basically got rid of them and never even, doesn't even remember them. Now, he didn't have celestial amnesia, I understand that. But he doesn't count it against me. But we do with each other. We keep track, we keep score. Sometimes marriages are like that. We keep score. And when somebody does something wrong, we bring up the whole history of why you always do it this way. Ooh, brother. You want to talk about two bad words in, in, uh, in marriage is you always or you never. <laughs> Husbands and wives don't use those words. <laughs> That's disaster. <laughs> it sounds like you're keeping score. No, God says you're to be a peacemaker. That's important. And lastly, I want to just say on this one point, it is to be done immediately. It says settle matters quickly with your adversary. Why? Because you're on the way to see the judge. You're on the way to see the judge. <laughs> As a pastor for some number of years, I can tell you the funeral services are too many to count of the times I've been at that where a, a son came up and said my father died and he died before I could get to him and we died with anger on our heart, on both our hearts. And I rue the day, and I said, I know, you can't change the situation, but you can change how you feel about it right now. And you still can go to your Heavenly Father and take care of that. You see, we're on the way to see the judge. All of us don't know how much time we've got 
just recently back home. Here's one of the ladies in our church, a young, beautiful lady, just 21, going to be married in six months, two weeks ago, killed in a car crash. Not going to see that wedding. We don't know how much time we have. None of us do. So don't let it sit and fester. Everybody's on the way to see the judge. The longer it goes, the deeper it gets. And you know what? It does a good job of growing pretty fast at night, doesn't it? The roots of bitterness can go deep. That's why the Bible instructs us to not let the sun go down on our wrath. Because it seems to grow better in the dark. All of us are heading for the great judge. I, the Lord, do not look at the outward appearance, he says, but I judge the heart. The judge is about able, you know, I I just think that the judge is about to open the door. I I think some of us feel like we're we're living in the last days. And and there are days where I look at the newspaper and I think the book of Revelation is is more current than even the book of Revelation. The the Revelation, I should say, is more current than even a newspaper. And it just feels like to me God is... God is going to open the door, and he's got his hand on the doorknob right now. And this whole thing's about ready to come to a close. Everywhere I go around this world, speaking to congregations all over the place, there is a sense, even amongst the young people today, who feel that there's kind of a sense of conclusion that's coming. Don't dally. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be recognized by everybody as the true children of God. Now, our last beatitude, let's start over here again. Let's summarize. Let's take a look. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, have nothing to offer God. Their heart is broken. I don't want to be on my own program. Please take over the leadership of my my life and make me meek. That causes me to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which causes me to judge correctly and be merciful, which causes me to to just absolutely clear out my my motives and and, and not have the mixed motives and and be pure in my motives, which causes me to then want to be pure or a peacemaker. Not only the absence of conflict, but rebuilding character in other people's lives. And then we come to the last bullet beatitude, which is an attitude of the world that hates that kind of person. They what? They persecute that kind of person. Yesterday I just clipped an article from the Harvard Business Review by a professor there by the name of Furton who said, we now need to start treating the Christian conservatives around the world as Nazis. That's what he said. They lost, we won. That's foolish to say that. But that's the kind of persecution you and I are going to be up against. It's real. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says this, and it's both the seed and the flower at the same time. So I'll read read it to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Remember now, righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to be persecuted because we were good people. We're not going to be persecuted necessarily because we did the right thing. We're going to be persecuted because of our righteousness. That our righteousness is not of the world, but it's of God who gave us our righteousness in Christ. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were also before you. You know, I've always been impressed with the honesty of Jesus. I really have. He obviously didn't take lessons from Madison Avenue. 
or some corporation in, in, in anywhere in the world. I mean, what would you say if you were going to start your own religion? Come on and join us. And by the way, the payoff is that everybody's going to love you. You'll be rich. You'll be famous. You'll have the lifestyle you want. You'd be painting it pretty good. But how many of you, if you started your own religion, would say, oh, yeah, if you follow me, you can plan on everybody hating you? I don't think that would draw a whole lot of people. But in this passage, Jesus says you'll be persecuted. Now, remember, he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's beginning his public ministry. He's gaining ground here. And some folks wanted to follow him, but said that, but he said, look, I'll tell you what, I've got no place to go because the foxes may have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nothing. And you know what? They never came back to hear another sermon by Jesus. Whenever we follow Jesus, it will never be easy. But he does say, blessed are those who do this. Makarios, those people who wish to see life at its fullest, need to understand that they have nothing to offer God. Their heart will get broken, but they'll come under my leadership. They'll be filled with my righteousness. They'll learn how to be merciful. Their agenda will become unmixed. They'll become peacemakers. And oh, by the way, when you become that kind of person, the world will hate your guts. Hate you to the max. Wow. That's that's tough. That's not easy. I think the world would say, no, blessed, blessed are you who've had your eyes wide open. Blessed are you who, who don't blink. Blessed are you who are not meek, but bold and strong. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for power and riches. Blessed are you who judge first and ask questions later. Blessed are you who, it doesn't matter what your program is, as long as you get it done. And you know what? You're going to be really popular. That's the world's Beatitudes. But this person he describes is completely out of step with the world. This world will never applaud this kind of person. This person will not appreciate this kind of person. This person will not elect this kind of person. This person, this, the world will not promote this person. This world will not fawn over a person like that. <laughs> you think people are going to love you because you're standing for Jesus, you're standing for righteousness? No, I'll tell you, the world is not going to like that. So be prepared. Well, there's three simple things I want to talk about as we close today. Number one, the reality of it. It just says, the reality of it says when. Not if, When. <laughs> When you are persecuted, when you're reviled. The only doubt is just when it's going to happen. John fifteen seventeen says, this is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you. As it is, you don't belong to the world, Jesus said. But you've chose, I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. If you obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. That they will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. That's right. They don't know who God is. 
Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we children then are, are, are called heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his, if indeed, then we share in his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Colossians 1.24 says this, Now I rejoice in what was, what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard for Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. When Jesus suffered on the cross, He left a little for you too. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Don't think this is strange. But rejoice that you participated in the sufferings of Christ that you might be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Philippians 3.10 says, I want you to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And 2 Timothy 3.12 kind of sums it up. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. No doubt. That's pretty dogmatic to me anyway. There is real persecution in this world. And God has exempted us from his wrath, but not the wrath of the world. Thank God he saved us from his wrath. But he didn't promise that he'd save us from the wrath of the world. Christians have died in wars, in fires, in murders, in crime. He has never spared us from the wrath of man, but he has spared us from his wrath. Acts 4, 5, they said they came back rejoicing because God counted them worthy. We think suffering is, I can't find a parking place. Can't find the matching shoes for my dress. Got a bad tea time for golf. Didn't get my 10,000 kroner raise. No, that's not suffering. My experience should match the word of God. That's what it should. Not the word of God to match my experience. <laughs> One's called exegesis, the other's called eisegesis. And we do a lot of that, don't we? The world says it's going to try to dishonor, discredit, and disgrace you. And I'll tell you, when a pastor sins, when a pastor commits a, uh, has an affair with a woman in the church, the world makes front page news out of it. But it doesn't make that same news for a bartender. Yeah, there's a double standard, isn't there? The world loves to just persecute the Christian. Who are Satan's greatest emissaries of this? Hmm. Half the time, most church members believe anything that they hear. And you need to check it out, what's going on. Well, there's three kinds of suffering that I want you to talk about just before we move on to the first. First of all, it says that how the world's going to talk to you is they're going to revile you. That's the first one. They'll revile you. They'll persecute you. They'll lie about you. Those are the three. And what it means to revile you is simply dishonor, disgrace, discredit. Like when I said when a pastor sins, that'll do it. That'll bring down that church. We got one less church to worry about in our town now. 
They will revile you. They'll go after everything they can that you do. When you make a mistake, believe me, they'll know about it. And I hear this all the time. I hear this. I don't want to go to church. There's too many hypocrites. Really? Well, that's true of every church. (laughs) But if you find one that doesn't have one, then I suggest you join it. Then they will have a hypocrite. (laughs) The church is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And people will go after you and revile you. The second thing they'll do is they'll persecute you. That's actually the only time this word is used in the Greek in the New Testament. And it literally means to track or put to flight. Now what's the idea here is that the world will come after you and kind of poke you and jab you and kind of taunt you and tempt you until they get you to, to sin. Oh, come on. Every, nobody believes that anymore. Come on. You have the freedom to do this or that or whatever. No one, I, we'll never tell. We'll keep our mouth shut. And they just taunt you and jab you and entice you to do something. And then you know it's not right to think. It's not the right thing to do. It's not a part of righteousness. But you fall to it anyway. And as soon as they track you, it's kind of like a, uh, an aviary term where, where the dogs went out into the field and they got the birds to fly up so that when the birds fly up, the hunter could go, bam, and shoot them down. That's what it means, that they will persecute you. They'll track you and put you to flight so they can gun you down. That's pretty mean. But that's how much the world hates Jesus and his righteousness. The disciples were picking corn on the Sabbath. And, of course, in all Jewish Talmuds and everything else, there was limited travel on the Sabbath. What were the Pharisees doing in a cornfield on the Sabbath in the first place? We don't know. I don't know. They were just waiting for this guy to show up, I guess. Well, people do that. I know men. I know that, that my son is in business, and he says, Dad, it's tough in business because you'll get around the water cooler or the coffee station, and some guy will crack a joke that's, on, that's like I said, is off color or something like that. And, and, and even laughing at it means you're part of their party. They'll get you to do something. They'll taunt you until, oh, come on, Joe, it's funny. Laugh at it. The next thing, Joe's testimony is on on trial because he's laughing at dirty jokes. They'll get you to say something stupid. They'll let you get you to listen to gossip. And then finally it says, if they can't get you those two ways, then they'll just make something up. They'll say, they'll lie about you. They'll say all manner of things falsely in the King James. They'll just make it up. And boy, that's hard to defend when people just make something up. Well, not only is there a sense in this, in this chapter, and I think it's, it's an important one to know, because it's just really, really powerful here. Not only is there a, the reality of it, but there's the reason for it, or accept its reason. Not only to accept its reality, but my reaction of the world when it's being against me is to accept its reality and then to accept its reason. And right there is the reason in verse 10, who are persecuted because of righteousness. That's why you're being persecuted. It's not because of your lovely personality. It's not because of the clothes you're wearing. People bully you and taunt you, and it's because you're a Christ follower. 
And Jesus stood for righteousness, and the world hates that. And we still need to stand strong. That's why we're doing the Beatitudes. That we're, we're understanding what kind of attitudes that have led to this idea of why is it so troubling to do that? Well, the third thing that's important is not only to know that to accept its reality and accept its reasons, but to accept its reaction. That's, that's what you and I do. We rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Trouble, it should be a thankful spirit. I, I don't like to be disliked. I don't like that. I, I don't like that at all. I like to be popular too, like anybody else. I like to be thought of well like anybody else. But you know what? If all I'm looking for is the praise of men and women rather than the praise of God, I'm looking in the wrong place. What is your reaction to inconvenience? What is your reaction to trouble? But consider it joy when you what? Encounter various trials and troubles. Because God is working that into your life to show you that you need him and to depend upon him. We have it so easy today in some places in our world, don't we? Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Rome and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And the Spirit said to him, well, only bonds and chains will await you. Didn't stop Paul. He said he went through 39 lashes. He got bitten by a snake. He was in a shipwreck. Didn't deter him from his mission. He went on three missionary journeys to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the known world. And then he went to Rome because he knew this, that all roads led to Rome. And basically what he was saying is that if I can just affect the learning center of the world, which was Rome at that time, I will affect the entire world. What are the learning centers today of the world? What are, what are, what are the modern-day Romes? I'll tell you, they're the universities and colleges if you can affect the universities and colleges with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which you may say, mission impossible. No, it isn't. What's impossible with men is possible with God. But if you can affect these learning centers, you can affect the world. When Bill Bright started his organization called Crew, he recognized one major thing in 1955, that 65 heads of states had come to the United States to do their doctoral and master's degree in the United States, 65 heads of states. And while they were in the university there in the United States, not one of them heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's going on in Denmark right now at the schools? Who's here and who's studying? And who are we praying for? You've often heard of the, the mafia and the, and the crime syndicate having a hit list of people they're going to take out. Well, I'm suggesting that maybe before I leave, you develop a hit list. <laughs> The top 10 people in your life that you're going to be praying for, for them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Call that your spiritual hit list. <laughs> and pray for them. And pray the, the grace of God upon their life and see them come to Jesus. What are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? Where do we leave the farm? Is it over money? Is it over stuff? Is it over work? 
Well, Philippians 3.8 has a great verse for us here today. It says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. Well, I'm going to ask you that same question that Jimmy Conlon asked Elliot Ness. What are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do in terms of the risk, in terms of what comes? You know we get excited about our salvation. We're saved by grace, and we get really thrilled over that. But then comes the trials and the tribulations of standing for Christ, and it's not always easy. But I do know this, that like a good mystery novel, I've read Revelation, I've read the last chapter in the Bible, and you know what? At the end, we win. Say it with me. We win. Not very loud. Say it again with me. We win. We win. We win. Wasn't that good news? Isn't that wonderful to know that when Jesus comes back, everything gets settled. Everything gets done. Well... There was a story, and I now have 220, so we're on target. I want everybody to relax. We're on target today. Gene's not going over today, so that's good. There's an old story about a guy that was a tightrope walker that walked across Niagara Falls, which is a very deep and scary waterfall up near New York. And he was going to walk across the he put a wire up against one of the, 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 the shortest distances between Canada and the United States. And they got a wire across there, but it was also the most treacherous part of the fall, of the, of the waterfall. And, the, and, and so he said to everybody, uh, and he said, no net, no net. He was going to do this without a net. And so he said to the, to the people, he said, how many of you, I believe, I can walk across that, that, that tightrope walker, that tightrope? And they said, we believe, we believe, we believe. And so he got up, he got his pole, and he, he walked all the way across, and he, he came back, and of course the, the audience just applauded like crazy. Then he said, how many of you think I could take a wheelbarrow across? Oh, yeah, we believe, no problem, take it, take it. So there he took, he took a wheelbarrow, and he went across the tightrope all the way over to Canada, and came back. And now they're going nuts. The, the crowd is getting kind of lathered up a little bit. They're getting pretty excited. He said, how many of you believe I could take a 200-pound sack of potatoes in this, in this, in this uh, wheelbarrow and take it across. We believe they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And again, he goes across the wheelbarrow with a sack of potatoes. There he goes, all the way over to Canada, coming back again, back to the United States. And, and the people, they're going nuts. Then somebody said, then he said, how many of you believe I could take a 200-pound man, a live man in this wheelbarrow across? And they all yelled, we believe, we believe. And then he said, who'll be the first? And it got real silent. I don't know about you, but if Jesus had the wheelbarrow out for me and he said, Gene, how many do you believe? Do you believe that if, if, I, if, you get in, if, I, if I ask you for your obedience to get in the wheelbarrow, that you can trust me and I'll take you wherever you need to go? And he were to say, Gene, what are you prepared to do? I would say to Carol, Carol, honey, I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. Because faith is simply trusting God. To simply say, Lord Jesus, it started with me and you. 
And I started this process by understanding I have nothing to offer you. You've got everything to offer me. As a result of that, it broke my heart. I was so sick of being on my own program. I said to you, Lord, I want to become meek. Please take over the control of my life. And when you did, you caused a hunger and thirst in my life for your word and your righteousness. It's now caused me to be able to be merciful and to judge correctly. It's cleaned up my motives. They're no longer mixed. It's caused me to want to be a peacemaker to where people actually say I'm the son of the God. And by the way, now when I am that kind of person, the world doesn't like me. But that's okay, Lord. Because I know I have you. And my reward is with you in eternity. When I think of Denmark and I think of FIBC, I'm going to be thinking of people who when I ask the question, what are you prepared to do? This congregation would have said, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Amen and amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. listening.